I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be. On December the 14th, 1996, a 763-foot ship was heading down the Mississippi River in the city of New Orleans, and as it came to a particularly difficult bend in the river, it lost control and began to veer toward the Riverwalk Mall. If you've ever been to New Orleans, you know that mall. And the crew couldn't recover control, and so it ended up veering all the way until it crashed into the mall. The mall was crowded with over 1,000 shoppers at the time. 116 were injured. The impact of that 763-foot freighter hitting the wharf just demolished a good chunk of that wharf. There are 200-plus shops and restaurants. There's a Hilton Hotel. All of that was affected. And the Coast Guard began to investigate this accident, what had happened. And they learned that the ship had lost control because the engine had shut down. They began to find, try to find out why the engine had shut down. They discovered that the engine had, had been shut down because it had low oil pressure. And the oil pressure was low because of a clogged oil filter. And the oil filter was clogged because the crew had failed to maintain the engine properly, which the Coast Guard found was their practice. 763-foot freighter crashes into a wharf because of a clogged oil filter. Seemingly small choices have surprisingly big consequences. Amen? That's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is about the fall of mankind, the rebellion of Adam and Eve, the choice to cross a boundary, to fail to observe a limitation that God had placed on their lives, a decision to reach out and take the fruit from a forbidden tree, a seemingly small choice to rebel against God that then has devastating consequences as a result. Genesis chapter 3 is about the consequences of sin. If Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 is about the fall of mankind. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8 through the end of the chapter is about the fallout of man's sin. And so that's what I want us to look at together. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, and I want to read a, a good stretch of text, and then we're going to walk back through. And I want you to see that sin today, sin has a cost, and sin brings a curse. But there's good news, sin has a cure. And let's look together at the Word of God. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They take the forbidden tree. Verse 7 says, The eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then God asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, it was the woman that you gave to me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. 
So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, it was the serpent that deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are more cursed than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed, your offspring, and her seed, her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he said to the woman, I will multiply your labor pains. You will bear children now with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband and yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you, and you will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field, and you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to the dust. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Notice it's a bookend with verse 7. Verse 7, they sew fig leaves together for clothing. Now God clothes them with animal skins. Verse 22, the Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Sin has consequences. Do you remember the old song by the cathedrals? Those of you who are over the age of 50, I grew up on Southern Gospel, so I remember it as well. But the cathedrals had this song. They said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. There's a high cost to sin. That's the first thing that we see in the text is that sin has a cost. You see that here in in verses 7 and all the way through verse 15. The first cost of sin is that mankind's relationship with God is broken. It's interesting, the movement in this text from chapter 2 to chapter 3, you see in chapter 2, mankind has a close relationship with God, a perfect friendship, intimacy with God. They walked with God and talked with God in the Garden of Eden. But now because of their sin, that relationship with God is broken, it's fractured. You can see that in verses 8 and 9 as they run from God and they hide from God amongst the trees and God is looking for them. He's searching them out. He's asking, where are you? And there is Adam and Eve who used to be close to God, now they're hiding from God. They took the fruit because they wanted to be like God. Now they hide from God. You can feel just a sense of growing distance from God, a movement away from the Lord. The first cost of sin is that there's distance from God, your creator. Verse 12, did you notice when God confronts Adam about his sin, what does Adam do? He moves from hiding from God to blaming God. He says, it's the woman that you gave me. She she gave me this fruit and I ate. So, So Adam here now moves from not just running from God and hiding from God, but now he moves to pointing a finger at God and blaming God. 
But man's relationship with God is broken. But then you see also that man's relationship with himself is broken. You see that in verses 9 and 10. Notice the language there in verse 10. <clears throat> God says, you know, where are you? And he says, I heard you. Uh, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Notice the language there. Af- afraid, naked, hid. Chapter 2 and verse 25, prior to mankind's rebellion, they were naked without shame. Now Adam becomes aware of his nakedness, and it produces fear. The first time that fear enters into the scriptural story. He becomes aware of his sin. It's not just that his nakedness has been uncovered. His sin has been uncovered. And because his sin has become uncovered, Adam has become undone. And now the way he views the world, the way he interacts with this world is one, a, a, a way of brokenness. It's, it's one of nakedness and shame and fear and hiding. Man's relationship with himself is broken. Man's relationship with others is broken. Did you notice there in uh, verse 12, not only does Adam blame God, God, you gave me this woman, she led me astray, but he also blames the woman, the woman you gave to be with me. It's emphatic in Hebrew. She gave me, she gave me some fruit uh, from the tree and I ate it. Adam begins to blame his wife. That's typically what we do when we get caught in our sin. We begin to point the fingers at anyone other than me, right? Revival often starts by owning my own sin. Not blaming and pointing fingers. But here, Adam moves from blaming God for giving him a woman to blaming the woman herself. She's the one who did it. And so his relationship with his wife now becomes broken. Conflict is going to enter the relationship, as we're going to see here in just a few moments as we look at verse 16. She's going to rule, want to rule over her husband. He's going to want to rule over his wife. And there's now conflict in human relationships. Man's relationship with others is broken. That's going to escalate in the next chapter with the first human murder. Man's relationship with God is broken. His relationship with himself is broken. His relationship with others is broken. Verse 13 shows us that man's relationship with the the creation itself becomes broken. Look what it says in verse 13. God comes to the woman and says, what have you done? And she says, she's just learning from Adam, right? Adam points the finger at Eve, and then Eve points the finger at a created being, the serpent. The serpent deceived me and ate. So now the blame game just continues. Now there's a sense of accusation towards the creation. And then in verse 15, You read this uh, part of the curse towards the serpent that God says, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. There's a sense of conflict with created things itself. You see that again in verses 17 through 19 when God curses Adam and he says, you know, you're going to, the ground is going to be cursed and you're going to have to labor and toil and sweat and there's going to be thorns and thistles and, and now working a garden is not going to come easy. It's going to come with, with sweat and labor. It's, it's as if the ground itself is in conflict with Adam. That man's relationship with the created order itself is broken. It reminds me of the line from the movie Failure to Launch with uh, Matthew McConaughey. You remember when he climbs up the rock wall and there's a lizard at the top that bites him on the finger and he falls 40 feet and Bradley Cooper walks over to him and Bradley says to Matthew McConaughey, your life is fundamentally at odds with the natural world. Nature rejects you. (laughs) That's what's happening with Adam. Nature itself is rejecting Adam. Brokenness, brokenness. 
That's the cost of sin. Sin breaks things. Sin takes what God has made for good and shatters it. And that's what you see in these early verses of our text this morning is the sense of the brokenness that sin brings, the high cost of sin. But not only does sin have a cost, the text goes on to tell us that sin brings a curse. What you have is as God begins to interact with Adam and Eve and he's questioning them and he finds out they've admitted finally to guilt. You know, we ate, we, we crossed the boundary, we, we failed to observe the limitation, God, that you had put on our life. Then God begins to deliver curses. Now, a curse is just another way of talking about God's judgment for sin, right? So we're talking about the fact that sin has consequences. One of the, the consequences of sin is the fact that it brings judgment. It always has that consequence. And here we see that in the text. God is going to give out three judgments, three curses, a curse to the serpent, a curse to the woman, and then a curse to the man. And there's a lot here, so we're going to have to go through fairly quickly. But let's look beginning in verse 14 at the curse to the serpent. God says to the serpent, because you've done this, right, because you've deceived Adam and Eve, You are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You'll move on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. So think about it. The serpent had tempted Eve to eat. Now part of the curse to the serpent is the serpent will eat. This is poetic justice, but the serpent's going to eat the dust. And then in verse 15, God says, and and you're going to be at war with mankind. Now, if you have a pet snake, let me just say, that's weird and abnormal, Okay. We're at war with the snakes. Can I get a witness? All right. I hate snakes. It comes back to Genesis 3 and verse 15, okay? God says, I'm going to put hostility between you and, and humans and between your descendants and the woman's descendants, and the woman is going to strike the, the heel of the, the, the descendant of Eve, but the descendant of Eve is going to crush the skull of the serpent. We're going to come back to that in just a few moments, but here's the sense of the curse Uh, to the snake, that there's going to be conflict now between the woman and her offspring and the serpent and his offspring with snakes biting the heels of humans and humans smashing the skulls of snakes. I lived this out a couple of months ago when I took Amy and the kids to Tyler State Park. In the course of our visit, we saw three snakes. And the scariest one, I was, uh, there was a downed pine tree and I decided to walk across the pine tree and show the kids, you know, how brave their dad was and that kind of thing, adventurous and I got to the end of that pine tree, and I jumped off to the ground on top of a snake. And you have never heard anyone sing quite so high as I did. I began to run, you know. And Mackenzie, our daughter, she, when I got back, you know, about a mile later, had run around a whole circle around the state park and came back. She said, Daddy, I didn't know your voice could go that high. <laughs> Crushing the skulls of serpents, serpents biting the heels of humans. That's the, that's the curse to the serpent. Then God curses the woman. See that in verse 16, there's two pieces here. The first has to do with, with uh, her children. The other has to do with her husband. So there's a sense of family strife, relational strife, strife in the home. The first part has to do with bearing children. He says to the woman, I will, I will intensify. It's literally, I will multiply your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. It's interesting. God had called Adam and Eve to multiply children. Remember in Genesis chapter one, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now God says, because of your rebellion, I'm going to multiply your pain while you're bearing children, multiplying children. It's interesting. There's a little Hebrew word play here. The word for pain is the word etzer 
in Hebrew. Can we say that together? Etzer, etzer. Why would he multiply her pain in childbirth? Is this God just being sort of sadistic and wanting to, you know, hurt the woman, something like that? No, there's something very significant going here. And it has to do with the word etzer, etzer, pain. I will multiply your etzer, your pain in childbirth. Do you know what the word for tree is in Hebrew? Etz, etz. The pain of childbirth was going to be a constant reminder of the tree that Eve had chosen. Every time she would experience etzer, pain in childbirth, it would be a reminder of etz, the tree that she had chosen. The, the, the curse of pain in childbirth was that constant regular reminder that the woman had rebelled, that she had chosen the tree above God. Etzer would be a reminder of etz. The pain of childbirth would be a reminder of the rebellion of mankind. Every time she delivered children, every time you deliver a child, women, it's a reminder of the tree that Eve chose. But not only is there going to be relational pain in bearing children, there's also now going to be relational pain in marriage. And you see that in verse 16, your desire will be for your husband and yet he will rule over you. Now, when you read that at first blush, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it, guys? Our wise desire will be for us. That sounds pretty good. Uh, but actually, here's what, that's, here's what that's talking about. I don't think that actually uh, the curse is that the woman is going to want the husband more. Now, I think what he's saying here is that her desire will be to rule over her husband, and yet he will rule over her. And you say, Pastor, where do you get that? Well, I guess actually, the next chapter, in chapter 4 and verse 7, which we're going to look at next week, is the story of Cain and Abel. And this phrase, the idea of having a desire for something and yet ruling over it, actually is repeated in chapter 4 and verse 7. Just look at chapter 4 and verse 7. God comes to Cain, and he says, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Look at this. Its desire is for you. Same phrase as chapter 3. Its desire, sin's desire is for you but you must rule over it. What is God saying to Cain? He's saying sin wants to master you. You need to master sin. Sin is crouching at the door waiting to pounce in order to dominate you, in order to rule over you. That's what it means for sin's, sin to have its desire for you. Sin wants to dominate you and yet you must dominate your sin. That's the sense in which I think chapter three and verse 16 should be understood. This is not saying that the wife is gonna desire her husband more, I think it's saying her desire is going to be to rule over her husband. And yet, in response, he's going to rule over her. So you have now a conflict between the husband and wife over who's in charge. The wife wanting to dominate the husband, the husband dominating the wife. What a tragic picture of what happens to marriage, right? Chapter two, you have this sense of loving partnership, husband and wife together stewarding the creation, together working the garden and watching over it as vice regents. Now because of sin, the woman is going to try to dominate the husband and the husband is going to rule over the wife. There's this sense of, of fighting for the lead. I'll tell you, oftentimes when I do marriage counseling, if there's a problem in marriage, it is amazing how often it has to do with who is in control, who is in the lead. And either the husband abusing his leadership or the wife wanting to usurp her husband's leadership, but this relational conflict has entered into the world ever since Genesis chapter 3. Now, no longer is marriage going to be this trusting partnership where husband, uh, the husband leads in love and the, the wife follows in trust. Now, there's going to be a seeking to dominate one another. The husband and the wife, each now seeking to take the lead. Someone has said that the woman now at her worst would be a nemesis to the man. 
and the man at his worst would dominate the woman. And that kind of conflict and relationship would, would, will exist until Christ redeems both husband and wife, and you can have a restored partnership in marriage. But that's part of the curse to the woman is a sense of relational strife with her children and with her husband. Then God curses the man. Now, the man's curse has to do with his work. And I want you to notice the language that's used here. He, God turns to the man in verse 17, and uh, he says, because you listen to the words of your wife instead of my word, right? You listen to the word of a human instead of my authoritative word about this tree that I commanded you. Now the ground is cursed because of you, and you will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. You remember back in chapter 2 and verse 16, God had told Adam that he could eat from any tree of the garden, and he said, you can eat from it freely, now Adam will no longer eat freely from the trees of the garden. Now he will eat only with difficulty. Now the ground itself is cursed. He goes on in verse 18 to say, the ground is going to produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. The, 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 the parallelism here with chapter 2 is very interesting. In chapter 2 and verse 9, God causes trees to grow. Now in chapter 3 and verse 18, thorns and thistles will grow. And then verse 19 you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. Uh, Adam, uh, which means man, will return to the ground in Hebrew, Adama. Adam goes back to Adama. The man goes back to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. Now that language about returning to the dust is really interesting because do you remember what did God use to make the man? Anybody remember? The dust of the ground, right? So God takes the grass, dust and gives life. Now, as a result of the curse of sin, where does man go? Back to the dust. It's like an undoing of creation. It's like a reversal of creation. God takes inanimate dust, breathes the breath of life, and boom, man. But because of man's sin, it is an undoing of God's good creation as man descends back to the dust from which he came. Folks, you can write it down. Sin is always an undoing of what God has done. Sin is always a reversal of God's good creation. And here, the ultimate curse of sin is that man one day will lie down again and return to the dust. The ultimate curse of sin is death. The Apostle Paul says, the wages of sin is death. The reason that you will die and I will die is because of our rebellion. That's the ultimate curse for sin. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. You can see it on the screen here. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and what does it say there? Death through sin. In this way, death spread to all people. Why? Because all have sinned. There's one more aspect of the curse for the man, and that's this idea of exile, banishment from the garden. Did you see that in verses 23 and 24? God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Just notice the words in verse 23, the word work the ground 
In verse 24, guard the way. Do you see those two words? Work the ground and guard the way. That ought to remind you of Genesis chapter 2, where God called Adam to work the ground and to work the garden and guard it. You remember those two words? Guard, shamar in Hebrew. It's the same word used here. Now, Adam is going to be banished from the garden. He will still have to work the ground, but now who's guarding the garden? Adam was created to guard the garden. Now God stations angels at the entrance to guard the garden from Adam. Now what's going on here? Well, it's it's a sense of exile. Adam is being sent away from the Garden of Eden. He is being banished. Folks, that is part of the curse of sin. It's one way of thinking about God's judgment for sin is that you, when you choose to walk away from God, you are walking into exile. There's a sense of being sent out, of being banished. You get this in Israel's history as well, right? When later when the Israelites rebel against God and they are taken away by the, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians into exile, right? Exile is a, a, a word picture for us of the curse of sin. When you choose to rebel against God, there's a sense in which you are driven out. There is a heavy curse, a high cost to sin. Sin has a cost, amen? Sin brings a curse. But I told you at the beginning, that's bad news. The cost of sin is bad news. The curse of sin is bad news. But there's good news in Genesis chapter 3, and I don't want you to miss it. The good news of Genesis chapter 3, yes, sin has a cost. Yes, sin brings a curse, but sin also has a cure. And the cure for sin is Christ. And you say, well, where was Christ in Genesis chapter 3? I didn't read the name Jesus in Genesis 3. Well, he's there, whether you recognized it or not. And listen, if all you had was the cost of sin and the curse of sin in Genesis chapter 3, then we would be the most miserable people on earth. We would be left standing at the end of Genesis chapter 3 totally hopeless because you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we've all experienced the cost of sin, we're all living under the curse of sin, and if there is no cure for sin, then we are hopeless. But I want you to see that Genesis 3 is actually full of hope. Genesis 3 is laced with God's grace. It's full of redemptive pictures. And I just want to tease two or three or four or five out for you. Okay, we'll see how far we can go. I want to show you, the, think about this. The gospel is like a lifeline to those who are drowning. I want you to see several lifelines from Genesis 3 to the gospel. I want you to see Genesis 3 is really setting up God's redemptive story that's going to be played out through the rest of the scriptures. You say, well, where do you see the gospel in Genesis chapter 3? Well, first of all, you see it in God's movement towards sinners. Did you notice in verses 8, 9, and 10, when Adam and Eve rebel, God could have just wiped Adam and Eve out, right? He says in chapter 2, the day you eat from this fruit, you will what? Certainly die. So God could have been just, just to wipe out humanity at that point and wipe them out. But he does not do that. So we see his patience, first of all. But, but notice what God does. God's first movement is towards Adam and Eve. He, he is moving towards them. There's Adam and Eve hiding, and God is calling out for the man. God is walking through the garden, looking for man, calling out for the man. Adam, where are you? And folks, I, I think that's a picture of God's grace, that in our sin, listen, let's just make it personal. When, when you sin, When I sin, sometimes it's easy to think God is repelled by me. 
I've messed up too bad. My relationship can never be restored. God is disgusted with me. And so what we tend to do is, like Adam, we tend to run and hide. We run from God in our sin. But this shows us that God is actually moving towards us in our rebellion. God is moving close. Folks, that's what the incarnation of Jesus is all about. God coming close to sinners. God moving into the neighborhood. God taking a step towards us so that he can redeem our life from the pit. When you fall into the pit of sin, God is not like that mean kid at the top of the pit yelling down and throwing stones and laughing at you. He is the one who gets into the pit with you and helps you get out. He is the God who moves close to you in your sin. He does not want to first drive you away. He wants, you to, he wants to draw you near. And I think that's a picture of God's grace. God's movement, his first movement, is to move in close to Adam and Eve. I think there's a second picture. And that is... In verse 21, when God provides clothing for Adam and Eve, I think this is a beautiful picture of what Jesus would ultimately do for us. Here, here in verse 21, it's a bookend, right? With, with verse 7, verse 7, Adam and Eve rebel, and what do they try to do? They try to sew together fig leaves, make clothes for themselves, and those, that clothing is inadequate, which, folks, that's what we do in our sin. We try to cover over our guilt. We try to cover over our shame, and the best we can do is something that looks like fig leaf clothing, which is not adequate. Human effort is always going to be insufficient to cover our shame. So what does God do? Verse 21, he provides adequate covering. He comes to Adam who's naked, fearful, hiding, full of shame, and he provides the skin of an animal to cover over that shame. And that covering is costly. It's an animal skin. So what does that mean? It means for the first time in the Bible, something in God's good creation has to die. The death of an animal. The animals didn't rebel against God. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The animals were innocent. So here God takes the life of an innocent animal and uses their clothing to cover over Adam's sin and shame. It's a, a kind of blood sacrifice a kind of atonement to cover over the sin and shame of Adam. That should sound familiar to you because if you know anything about Israel's history, you know that that's exactly what the Levitical priests would do. The Levitical priests would every year offer the blood of an innocent animal and cover the horns of the altar to provide a covering for the sin of the people so that God would accept that innocent life as a substitute for his guilty people. And he would pour out his wrath on the innocent so that he could pour out mercy on the guilty. And you know that those year after year after year sacrifices of the Levitical priests were just a picture pointing you forward to a climactic sacrifice that would happen on Calvary when the perfect Lamb of God, who was innocent, who had never sinned, shed his blood so that his blood could provide a covering for those of us who are guilty. This is what the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews and uh, chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. You'll see it here on the screens. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is not of this creation. 
He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, let's say this together, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. That's a picture in Genesis chapter three and verse 21 of an innocent animal who dies for the guilty to cover their shame. That's a picture of what Christ would ultimately do in his death on the cross, amen? Okay, there's another picture. It's in verses 22 through 24. Remember here now, the, as Adam and Eve are experiencing the curse of sin, they're driven out. They're driven out from the garden. They're banished. They're sent into exile. Now Adam, who was supposed to guard the garden, now the garden is being guarded from him by these angels, these cherubim. Okay, now I want you to notice something. Pay attention to the details of the text. In verse 24, which direction do Adam and Eve go when they leave the garden? East. So the garden is in the west. They're driven out to the east. And then at the entrance, guarding the entrance to come back into the garden is our cherubim. So there's a sense in which you're banished from the, the garden of Eden. You're driven east and there are cherubim guarding the entrance into the presence of God. Now that's exile. You say, how does that relate to the gospel? Well, here's how. Exile isn't forever. Exile is not forever. And there was a hint of this in Israel's history. Now, I'm going to get a little nerdy here with you for a minute. Can I get nerdy today? Can you track with me just for a couple of minutes? This is pretty cool. Okay, I want you to think about Israel's history when, they're, when they have a temple. Okay, the temple is where God's presence dwells on earth, just like it was in Eden, right? The innermost room of the temple, who can tell me what that room was called? The Holy of Holies. And you remember the Holy of Holies was separated from everything else in the temple by a, a curtain, a veil. Okay, now I've got a gold star for anyone who can answer this trivia question, all right? Does anybody know what was woven into that veil? Second Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 14, which I, kn I know you're all familiar with that. Uh, Second Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 14 tells us about the veil in the curtain, and it says that cherubim were woven into the veil. Now, do you happen to know how the temple was laid out geographically? It, it was built on an east-west axis. You know where the Holy of Holies was located? The west. That's why the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem today, the western wall of the temple, is the one nearest the Holy of Holies. So I want you to picture this. When the high priest would go through the temple into the Holy of Holies, he's moving from the east back to the west. And when he goes into the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwells, this Ark of the Covenant, he's going to enter through a veil. And on that veil will be cherubim. You see any imagery there? It's as if when the high priest enters into the presence of God, it's like a re-entry into Eden. It's like he's coming back into the garden. It's like he's re-entering the presence of God. It's like exile is being reversed and turned back. It's a reversal of the curse. And folks, that right there was a picture of what would ultimately happen when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. What Jesus was doing when he died on the cross was he was opening up the way back into the presence of God. There's something very powerful that happens when Jesus dies on the cross. Something happens in the Holy of Holies. Anybody remember what it was? 
the veil in the temple splits in two, top from bottom, that veil with the cherubim split open. And what Jesus was doing is he was opening up the way for us to go back to Eden, to go back into the presence of God. And so think about this imagery. If, if sin is, if the curse of sin could be thought of as banishment and exile and being driven out, the work of Jesus in the gospel is a big welcome home sign. It is a return home, just like the prodigal son who flees to a far country, but comes to his senses and turns. And there is the father running towards him with open arms. That's what Christ is doing in his work on the cross for you. He is reopening entry to the presence of God for you. Can you handle one more? Okay, let me give you one more picture and then we'll land the plane, I promise, okay? It's actually, I think, the most obvious one in Genesis 3. It's verse 15. It's, it's a promise embedded in the middle of a curse. God curses the serpent and he says, I'm gonna put enmity, hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring, your seed and her offspring, her seed. And he will strike your head. He will crush your skull and you will bruise his heel. So this is a promise that God makes to the serpent. God says to the serpent, you're going to be fighting with the seed of Eve. Now the seed, when we think of offspring, we think plural, right? We think our children, our descendants, our, our, our offspring. But this is talking about a singular seed, a singular offspring. It's why it says he, he, the seed of Eve, the special descendant of Eve is going to crush the skull of the serpent. And yet the serpent will deliver a, a blow. The serpent will deliver a blow that will cause a bruise. And yet the serpent will ultimately be defeated as the seed of Eve crushes the skull. Now, that promise <clears throat> becomes a prophetic hope for the, the Israelites. They begin to look forward to who's the seed of Eve? Who is the special descendant of Eve who's going to one day come and crush the serpent? And there are lots of candidates. One of them is David. And it's really interesting. If you pay attention to the details of the David and Goliath story, sometimes I think we read David and Goliath story the wrong way. We read David uh, and Goliath and we, we kind of see ourselves in the story as David. You know, so we read that story and we say, you know, we all face giants in life. We all have Goliaths that we have to fight, you know, facing the giants. We all face our own giants. And the David and Goliath story is intended to give us courage to go out and fight our battles. I think that's completely reading the story upside down. The reality is we're more like the Israelites in that story. You remember the Israelites? Here's this scary enemy of Israel and nobody is, nobody's big enough to go out and fight him. And so what do they do? They run and hide behind wagons and rocks and things of that nature. Until a young hero goes onto the battlefield and fights their battle for them, a battle they did not have the resources to fight. And he wins the victory by throwing a slingshot, he uses a slingshot, hits a, Goliath on the head with a rock, and Goliath falls to the ground. Now, the details in 1 Samuel are very interesting. Does anybody remember what Goliath happened to be wearing? He's wearing armor, but the text says he was wearing bronze scale armor. Goliath's armor looked like snake skin. It looked like scales. 
And you remember what David did? He didn't just kill him with a rock. What does he do? He takes out his sword and he chops his head off. You know what the Israelites were probably thinking? Genesis 3.15. The skull of the serpent is being crushed. (laughs) The skull of the snake-like one is being destroyed. But of course, you know that the story is really not about David. There's another one greater than David, a son of David, who is also a son of Eve, who would come close to us in our sin, who would come near, and he would take the curse of Adam on himself. You remember what the curse was? Sweat, thorns, toil, dust. He would sweat drops of blood. He would toil under a cross. He would wear a crown of thorns. He would be crucified, and ultimately he would be put in the ground in the dust. But that's not the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus would come out through the other side of death. And the Bible says that he rose victoriously from the grave with the keys to death and hell in his hand. And what's happening in the resurrection is that Jesus is stomping on the skull of the serpent. Yes, the serpent delivered a bruising blow. But in the resurrection, Jesus crushed the skull of the serpent. And we, like the Israelites, you remember what happens after David kills Goliath? What do the Israelites do? They come out from the rocks, they rush onto the field, and they celebrate in the victory. They weren't fighting for victory at that point. They were fighting from victory. And that's exactly what happens with the church of Jesus Christ. Because of our victor who has conquered the serpent, we get to participate in his victory. Paul says this in Romans 16 and verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Do you realize that we get to participate in the victory of God over the serpent? All of that is seen in Genesis chapter 3. It's something that the Israelites looked forward to, but folks, we look back and we rejoice, which means that even though sin has a cost and even though it brings a curse, it has a cure, and the cure is Christ. So run to him for refuge. Amen? Let's bow together. Lord, we are so thankful for the good news of the gospel. We are thankful for Jesus We're thankful that because of his work, we can have life. May we be found in him. God, I pray that those of us in the room today who know Jesus, that we would not fight for victory, but fight from victory, that we would participate, celebrate in the victory he has won. Lord, if there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus as Savior and they are weighed down under the heavy cost and the high curse of sin, that today they would find Christ as the cure. And we pray in his name. Amen.